welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. Now, careful readers will recognize that where we started in the Gospel of John today, and in in chapter 16, verse 1, was a terrible place to start reading. Like, if you've never read the Gospel of John before, don't start in chapter 16, verse 1. I'm just going to, like, lay it up. Maybe chapter 1 would be a good place for you to start. But where we just picked back up, especially after a two-month break, this is just how it worked out. We went up to the end of chapter 15 before Advent, this is the place to start. It's a terrible place to start. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. Look at Jesus' first words. He says, I've said all these things to you. Like, what, what is that? We, we just skipped the whole setup and went straight to the punchline. Have you ever skipped the setup and gone straight to the punchline of a joke? It doesn't make any sense. It's not a very good joke. And the, the same is here for Jesus' teaching. It doesn't quite hit how it's supposed to if we skip the setup. Right? If you were to start at John chapter 16, verse 1, and Jesus says, all these things I have said to you, your immediate question should be what, church? What things? Y'all are smart. This is good. This is, that's a very good question to ask. When you see all these things, you better say, well, what things? Why has Jesus said what things? He's referring here in this verse to what scholars call his farewell discourse. All of the words and the conversation that Jesus is having with his closest friends, basically from the end of chapter 13 through chapter 16 that we find ourselves in now. And then he goes into his his high priestly prayer. This conversation that Jesus isn't, that we're entering into in the middle of, that Jesus is having with his disciples, stretches back multiple chapters. Now, I don't have time to run it all back. This took us like five or six weeks to get through that kind of chunk uh, back in the fall when we were going through this. So I, I certainly don't have time to rehash it all for you now. But it, it will be helpful just to kind of give the highlights. Yes? This, this evening that we're entering into with Jesus and his disciples started at the dinner table as they were reclining at what we now know as the Last Supper. At dinner, Jesus started by washing his disciples' feet and then allowed Judas to go out into the night to do what he had to do to, to betray Jesus. And then in fairly quick succession, we see Jesus deliver many of his most famous lines, kind of relentlessly, one after the other. A new command I give you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am sending you another helper, an advocate, who will teach you and cause you to remember everything that I have told you. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He just kind of spits out these, these, these deep, profound, challenging teachings one right after the other. It really is kind of a, a roller coaster ride that encapsulates what it means to 
do life with Jesus fairly well. The, the farewell discourse includes the good and the bad, the, the joyful and the distressing, the hardest things of life and the help that you need to make it through. Can you just imagine being part of this conversation? You, you've sat as Jesus, your master, has washed your feet in the upper room. You rose from the table when he invited you to walk out into the evening and you've been following him, trying to remember all these things that he is saying. Wouldn't you just feel like, hold on, hold on a minute, Jesus. Why are you telling us all this? Remember, they didn't know at this point that this was the night that he would be betrayed, even though the betrayer has already gone out. They didn't know that he was about to be arrested and sentenced to death. Could you imagine your mind swimming with all these teachings of Jesus, one right after the other? Jesus, why are you telling us all this? They might not have asked this question out loud, but it appears that Jesus heard their internal questioning and answered them in verse 1. I have said all these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. This is, this is pretty remarkable, church. Jesus' longest speech act, the, the longest continual dialogue, the, the most kind of unadulterated, just straightforward teachings of Jesus that we get in the book of John. Jesus says that the purpose of all of it is to keep those who follow him from falling away, to, to help us endure. This tells me that that we should think this is a pretty important thing to spend some time thinking about because clearly Jesus did. Everything that he has said in his farewell discourse to his disciples has been for this purpose, he tells us. Now, someone might say, if, if everything that Jesus has said since chapter 13 is true, if all those things that I just ran through, like if he really is the way, the truth, and the life, if he really is the vine, and we're the branches, he's the source of life, why would anyone fall away? Right? That's one reaction you might have, listening to the whole farewell discourse, and then Jesus says, I said all this to you so that you won't fall away. You might say, well, like, that sounds great. Why would anyone ever fall away from you, Jesus? The answer is fairly simple. It's, it's the same reason, actually, why most people have already given up their New Year's resolutions. Right? I, I like to work out here in the lobby of the YMCA. I work on my sermon during the week. Let me tell you, the first two weeks of the year were a lot busier than this past week was. I'm not, I'm not casting any judgments. I'm just kind of making an ob observation. Right? It's the, it's the same reason why, why dieting doesn't work for most people, because humans will consistently choose what is easy over what is good. You can sit and listen to the whole farewell discourse and say, that sounds like the best life ever. Why would anyone ever fall away? Because humans have this nagging tendency to choose what is easy over what is good. Life with Jesus is good. It is the, the goodest good, if you'll, if you'll let me go there, but it is also hard. And Jesus knows that. 
He knows that there will be very real temptations to to give up the goodness of life with him and to settle for the convenience and comfort of conformity to the world. There will be temptations and opportunities for us to fall away from him. And so he says all of this so that we wouldn't fall away, but he even goes a step further and he begins to name a few of the specific types of threats that you and I might be expected to find in this life. First, if you'll look with me at verses 2 and 3, Jesus names a social threat. He says, look, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. You know, they'll put you out of the synagogues. That's the first thing he says after this warning not to fall away. Now, it would be easy for you and I to think like, well, I'm not in a synagogue. I can't be put out of a synagogue. This doesn't really apply to me. Like, like what's the point of this for me? But we have to realize, church, that synagogues were, were not just places of worship that people visited once a week. Synagogues were in many ways the, the very central, center, the, the focal point of Jewish social life. To be part of a synagogue was to have community. It was to be bound together to, to friends and families in your area. It was to have opportunities for your business to flourish because you, you had a place where you could make connections with, with other people who might need your services or who you might need their services. It was to be accepted in society. To be put out of a synagogue then was not simply to be sent meandering on a church shopping mission. No, to be put out of a synagogue was to be cut off from community cut off from friendships, cut off from all the various forms of social flourishing. One scholar that I read said that if you were cut, put out of your synagogue, cut off from that community, you'd be better off packing up everything and moving away because your life in that place was done for all intents and purposes. We don't really have that in our society. We, we don't really have that one kind of central institution or place that has that much power over so many aspects of our life. But I think that Jesus is telling us that there might be social pressures in any and all aspects of life when you follow him. Social pressures for you might come from your family or from your friends. They might come from coworkers or classmates. They, they might come in the places where you live or work or learn or play. Any of these areas could be areas where followers of Jesus will face social threats to fall away. And Jesus wants us to take those seriously. But it's not the only kind of threat that he mentions. If we continue on, Jesus also points out that there will be physical threats to Christians that can tempt us to fall away. He says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Do you notice how Jesus is like taking for granted here that imminent death is like a a possibility for, for people? He says, when whoever kills you. He doesn't say like, if this happens. He's like, so whenever this happens, just so you know, here's what they're gonna be thinking. They're gonna think in their sinful Uh, life separated from God, that they're actually doing God a favor by taking you out. 
those who carry out this persecution think that they're the ones being faithful. As we continue through the story of scripture and even through church history, we see that this was immediately the case for the first generation of Jesus followers. We know from history that almost all of these original disciples to whom Jesus is speaking in these very verses were killed for their faith. And I say almost all because the one guy that they couldn't seem to kill, they tried boiling alive in oil and they were like, well, he just keeps surviving. Let's just put him on an island prison all by himself. Like this, this was the reality for the very people that Jesus is speaking to in these verses. The apostle Paul went from being a person who carried out physical attacks on Christians to suffering physical attacks after he became a Christian. Eventually, the the Romans looked at at the unbelieving Jews carrying out this persecution and said, well, that seems like a good idea. And they took up killing Christians in service to Caesar, who they claimed was a son of God. And on and on through history. Even today, in, in various parts of the world, the physical threat that comes simply from following Jesus, from confessing faith in Jesus is very real. It's, it's intense all over the world in, in countries like Sudan, North Korea, Iran. All over the world, there are places where this kind of physical threat exists. You and I may not have experienced them, at least not in the same way as other Christians, maybe not in the same way certainly as the disciples that Jesus is talking to here. So it can be easy, I think, for us to take lightly the threat that might be posed to us falling away. Even some of us maybe have never experienced the kind of social threats, cutting off business opportunities or friendships or family members that come or could come with following Jesus. But what's interesting in verse 3 is Jesus tells us that underneath all of these things that could tempt disciples to fall away, that what's really going on is a spiritual threat. He says that the people who do these things, who, who cut you or put you out of the synagogues or, or even might go so far as to bring physical harm on the people following Jesus, he says they do all these things because they do not know the Father nor me. They are spiritually dead. See, Jesus is, is opening our eyes here to a battle that is going on and continues to go on to this day in the spiritual realm over the hearts and minds of women and men that Jesus wants us to take seriously. See, the, the spiritual threats of our world are not seeking simply to scare us into submission like the physical threats might do. They're not seeking to, to pressure us into compliance like the social threats might do. No, the spiritual threats that might lead Christians to, to fall away from Jesus are meant to deceive us into an alternate discipleship, to, to form and shape us into the image of something other than God. 
This was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. To, to believe that they could become like God by disobeying God, even though that God already told them that he had made them in his image and likeness. It was not a social pressure or a physical threat, but rather a, a demented discipleship that led them astray. Spiritual threats want to form us into some other image, promising fruit and delivering thorns. This is a weighty and a worrisome reality that Jesus paints here in these verses. And, and I expect that it is a reality that many of us have faced ourselves in one of these forms or the other, or at the very least, we've known someone, we've, we've walked with someone, we've been close to someone as they've struggled through these pressures and threats. I wonder, have you ever faced the kind of social threat that Jesus is talking about here? Social, cultural pressure to... to put away the things of Jesus in order to be accepted by the world? Have you ever lost a friend or relationship or a job opportunity due to your commitment to following Jesus faithfully? Have you ever faced a, a physical threat to your faith? Ever found yourself in a situation where you could realistically suffer harm or worse in the name of Jesus? Or have you ever experienced spiritual threats? Those, those whispered, barely audible half-lies that would lead you away from Jesus and the life that is available in him. Those, those fears which grow bigger than reality the longer you try to face them in your own strength. That, that temptation to settle for easy rather than good. I don't know a single Christian who's never faced any of these threats. It should stir up a, a moment in us of sober reflection. I would say it's, it's even okay to be grieved at this reality. Indeed, later in the passage, Jesus recognizes, I think it's in verse 7, that his disciples' hearts are filled with sorrow as he's talking about all of these things. It is right and good for us to feel the weight of Jesus' words. But it is wrong for us to carry the weight of what Jesus is saying in our own strength. See, Jesus knows what we have gone through and what we will go through in following him. But it's better than that. So sometimes, and I think we should, we, we take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows all. We should take comfort in that. But what we see here is not merely that Jesus knows what will happen to those who are following him. It's that Jesus cares about what will happen. And because he cares, he helps us. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Think about that. Jesus is here talking about how hard life is about to get, right on the heels of talking about how he's going to leave them. I'm going away to the, to the one who sent me. I'm returning back to the Father. You will see me no longer. 
things are going to get really hard. One might think that Jesus doesn't care about how hard things are about to get for his people, but in fact, it's the very opposite. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See how much Jesus cares for his people. How the lengths that he goes to to help us not fall away. He sends us his very spirit. That, didn't, <clears throat> that doesn't hit us, I think, the way it should. Even after spending a few weeks as a church talking about spiritual gifts and the amazing truth it is that we have the power and the presence of God in us, in the person sitting next to you, in you if you are a follower of Jesus. And yet we can stand and, and say, Jesus is going to send a helper. It's to our advantage that he goes away and think, yeah, but is it? Like, like, like wouldn't it be better if, if Jesus could have stuck around a little while longer? Like, wouldn't I be better off if, if I could do life with Jesus, like with Jesus? Like, like, wouldn't that be more to my advantage? Friends, you're not listening to Jesus. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. I shared this illustration back in the fall, but I think it's been long enough if you'll go with me here. Have y'all ever been to a hotel? You've got your reservation. You're, you're ready to go. You're going on a nice vacation and you get there and they say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry, sir. We've accidentally overbooked the hotel and, and your room is no longer available. Yeah, anybody ever had that experience? Literally just me. Okay, one other person. Thank you. This is, we're, we've got some work to do here, actually. All right. Imagine going to a hotel and immediately, like, what? Your heart sinks. They're like, oh, yeah, we don't have your, your like, king room on the top floor, but we've got this, like, double twin over here, like, shoved away in the corner. You're like, well, I guess we got to sleep somewhere. Like, I think that's what we think the Holy Spirit is in comparison to Jesus sometimes. Jesus is like, I'm going away, but don't worry, I've made other accommodations. They, they, they might not be exactly what you wanted, what you were hoping for, but it'll get you by. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Sarah and I, last summer, before Elias was born, we, we went to Disneyland. And we got to our hotel. We had made like kind of a, a trip out, a road trip out of it. And we get down and we get to our hotel and they say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Dawson. We've overbooked the hotel. We've got some construction going on. Your room is no longer available. Your, your standard king room on wherever it was in the hotel is no longer available. Would it be okay with you if we put you in a king suite that overlooks the park so that you could see the fireworks every night from the comfort of your hotel room? Yeah, yeah, that would be, I mean, I'm very upset about this and I would like to talk to your manager, but no, of course, that would be fine. That was to our advantage that we could not have what we thought we wanted because what the reality was, was something better for us that we didn't even know. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, it is better for you that I go away because if I go, I will send the spirit to you and I will be able not just to be with one or three or 12 of you at a time. Rather, my presence and my power will be present in all of my people. My help will be, be available to everyone at all time in every place who has put their faith in me. Church, it is a, a good thing, a loving thing, a caring thing that Jesus does when he sends his spirit to us. Amen? 
Amen. It does beg the question, though, like how does the Spirit practically help us? We've spent the past few weeks talking about the, the power, the spiritual gifts, and, and how we are to cooperate with the Spirit in being the church. But that's a little different from what Jesus is talking about here. How does the Spirit practically help us? As we go through these, these next verses, we see a few ways in which the Spirit helps us. And uh, I'll go through these quickly. Hopefully, it's not too quickly. The first thing that we see in verses 8 through 11 is that the Holy Spirit helps us by convicting the world. This is what Jesus says. He says, when he, that is the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit helps us to endure, helps us to not fall away by bringing conviction. This is interesting. That, that word convict or conviction, it means to expose or to convince or to prove the guilt of something or someone. And there's a couple different senses in which this word is used in the New Testament and, and kind of commonly by Christians. For someone who is a follower of Jesus, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, conviction is a good thing. Amen? Not, not an easy thing, hear me, but it is a good thing. When we experience conviction as a believer, that's, that's the Spirit exposing what is sinful and giving us the grace to repent. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a changed life. The word literally means turning. So to experience conviction as a believer is a grace. Conviction is an opportunity for faith and for growth. But Jesus here is talking about the Spirit convicting not believers, but the world. Those who have not accepted him, not believed in him. Those who are not in Christ, conviction leads not to repentance and life, but to judgment and death because of hard-heartedness. And specifically, Jesus says that the Spirit convicts the world of three things. First, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. See, the, the root of all sin is rebellion against God and rejection of Jesus. And when you boil sin down, that is what it comes down to. And when the Spirit comes into the world, Jesus is saying he's going to expose that rebellion because people have not believed in Jesus. Second, the Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. And Jesus says, because I am going to the Father and they will see me no longer. This is kind of a, a weird phrasing, I think, for us. I'm like, what, is Jesus, why, what does righteousness have to do with Jesus going to the Father? Well, think about it. Jesus was the only, is to this day, the only perfect, sinless human. While he was in the world living his incarnate life among us as one of us, he was in himself all the conviction of righteousness that the world needed. All you had to do is hold up some imperfect person next to perfect Jesus and be like, yep, you're wrong. He's right because he was perfect and he was here in the flesh for all to see. But now, because Jesus 
is not here for all to see. He has gone back to the Father. How are, are we supposed to tell the righteous from the unrighteous? Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict concerning righteousness. See, the, the standard is still the same. The standard is still the perfection of the righteousness of Jesus. It, it's the objective and unchanging standard of Jesus' perfection that everything else is measured against. But now... The Spirit is here to convict the world concerning the righteousness of Jesus. Third, he says that the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is a reference Jesus is making to the enemy of God, Satan. See, on the cross, it appears momentarily that God's enemy has won the spiritual war by killing the very Son of God. But the story doesn't end on the cross because in his victorious resurrection, it is, we find that it is really Jesus who has defeated Satan and death as he was raised from the grave with all power in his hands. See, the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment ought to help us as believers endure the hard things of life because it teaches us that the evil and easy way of the world will never win out over the way of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit convicts the world, we can partner with him to see sin for what it is and to pursue true righteousness. But that's just one of the ways the Spirit helps us. We see in verses 12 to 13 that the Holy Spirit also reveals truth. Look with me at these verses. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit's ministry does not only consist of convicting the world, all the people out there. Jesus says that he is also given to guide believers, those who follow, love, and serve Jesus into all truth. In fact, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't actually say all truth. It says all the truth. Jesus says the Spirit comes to guide his people into all the truth. We've got to be careful these days with words like truth. Because if you say something about all truth, that could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Well, the, the Holy Spirit is given to, to guide us into all truth, right? And maybe he guides you into that truth, and maybe he guides me into this truth, and maybe he guides that other person into that truth. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says all the truth. There's a, the, there's a definite article in the Greek, which means that Jesus has a particular truth in mind, an authoritative truth, an absolute objective truth, the very truth of God. It's interesting to me that, that we think as humans or that some in our culture think that, that we can live into our truth that is not the truth when even God the Holy Spirit defers to the authority of the Father and the Son. Do you see that in the text? It says that the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. How, how 
prideful do humans have to be to say that we can speak on our own authority to guide ourselves into some new truth when even God the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own authority but rather defers to the Father and the Son in order to guide us into all the truth, the real truth, capital T, truth. That said... Sometimes, on the other hand, people who get really, really upset with uh, kind of subjective or uh, changing definitions of truth can often be heavy-handed in their handling of the truth. But look at how the spirit of truth acts toward us. It says that when he comes, he will guide us into all the truth. Sometimes I think it can be tempting for Christians to, to see truth or at least to use truth, to, to bend it into a blunt object in order to beat somebody into submission. But that's not how the Spirit acts toward us. Rather, it says he, he guides us into all the truth, like a, a shepherd leading sheep. There is a, a care and a kindness inherent in the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Spirit reveals truth helps believers to endure because he is helping us tell the truth from the lies. Third thing we see, third way the Holy Spirit helps us is, is in verses 14 and 15. We see that the Holy Spirit helps us because he glorifies God in us. Jesus says, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So even more specifically, it says that the Spirit is going to come in order to glorify Jesus in and among his people. How does he do that? Jesus says he's going to preach the gospel to you. He says he will take all that is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus but his perfect sinless life? What, is, what belongs to Jesus but his sacrificial death on a cross in our place? What, what belongs to Jesus that the Holy Spirit could declare triumphantly to us but his victorious resurrection from the dead, leaving sin, death, and Satan behind him? What belongs to Jesus but all the power that was in his right hand as he rose, all, all authority in heaven and on earth. See, the Spirit comes to glorify Jesus in us by preaching the gospel to us, leading us to worship and glorify Jesus as the God and Savior of all. If you remember, though, earlier Jesus has said that his job is to say and do what the Father has given him. And so now we, we see the Trinity, the one God in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together to bring each other glory. God has, has sent the Son, that God the Father has sent the Son into the world. In verse, chapter 17, we'll see Jesus pray to the Father, asking him to glorify Jesus in his death. So the Father is sending and glorifying the Son. Jesus, the Son, is, is obeying, teaching about, saying all the things that the Father gives him, glorifying the Father. And now the Father and the Son are going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit's job is to stir up awe, admiration, and worship in God's people in order to glorify the Father and the Son. There's, there's this beautiful inter 
inner workings of the Trinity that we see here. In many ways, it seems to me that the the Spirit is simply continuing the ministry and the work of Jesus in the world. He, He convicts the world just like Jesus did. He leads us into all the truth just like Jesus did. And he causes us to glorify God as we believe and live life with him just as Jesus did. See, friends, the the fact that the Holy Spirit glorifies God helps us to endure because he keeps our eyes on the victorious Savior Jesus rather than on the broken and difficult circumstances of the world. It's hard for me to keep going without just pausing to like shout and start celebrating. I I hope this is as good of news to your ears as it feels coming out of my mouth, church. This, This feels like really good news. And yet, it's not easy, is it? Life with Jesus is, is not easy, and it was never meant to be. And, and, I, and I think for some of us in certain seasons of life, it, it can be tempting to become discouraged by, by the fact of how hard it is. Not even the fact of how hard it is, but, but the fact that Jesus seems to know more than we do, and he's not letting us know when we want to know. Doesn't that make life hard? I mean, it is a comfort, as I said earlier, to know that Jesus knows all of these things, but sometimes the, the brokenness and bitterness of life can grab hold of our hearts in such a way that that comfort gets contorted into questioning the goodness of Jesus. How, if you know all these things, can you lead me into them? How, if you know all these things, can you keep them from me? I want us to notice something that Jesus said right in the middle of this passage and not to move past it too quickly. In verse 12, Jesus says, he tells us that one of the reasons he is sending his spirit is because he is not done with us yet. He says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you. I don't know about you, that would be really frustrating for me to hear. Here's Jesus talking about how hard life is gonna be, how he's about to go away, and he's like, don't worry, I've still got a lot to tell you. And? Like, okay, great, I'm, I'm all ears, Jesus, tell me. But you cannot bear them now. In the midst of the hard times following Jesus, when when we feel like we don't know how we got here and we don't know how we're going to move forward, we need to remember that Jesus is not done speaking to us yet, church. He still has many things to say to us. He, He still has many things to say to you. Parents, you've used this line on your children, have you not? I'll tell you when you're older. I'll tell you when you're ready. Now, I know what we're gonna do tomorrow. It's a surprise, right? Like, it's not time for you to know that yet. See, when you're a child, you think that you have the right to know everything right now in your timing because you think it's good. But when you're a parent, you recognize that that sometimes it's good for your kids that you withhold something for them from them for a time. 
you know that the most loving thing for your children is not to burden them with everything that might come their way over the course of life, but to graciously dole out servings of what they can handle now in the moment. Because if you try to tell them everything, it would be too much for them to bear. In the same way, we, we sometimes wish that Jesus would simply reveal everything we need to know all at once. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? Will this job work itself out? Or, or should I go ahead and look for another one now? How do I make it out of this season of parenting? What's going to happen in the next season? How do I do something now to avoid hardship later? And, and in these times, these hard times, uh, occasionally we feel as though the moment that we stop hearing the voice of God is the same as the moment that God has stopped speaking to us forever. We, we begin to despair because we don't know everything that God knows. But Jesus is telling us here in John chapter 16 that that is out of love for you. That he still has many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So like a loving parent, he invites you to stay connected so that he can continue revealing himself to you, drawing you closer to himself, leading you into all the truth. <clears throat> See, Jesus knows not only what we need to hear, he knows also when we need to hear it. In his infinite love and wisdom, he tells us, look, I have all the answers that you're asking for. I have all the answers that you don't even know you need yet. I have many things to say to you, but will you trust me enough to stay with me until you can bear them? Do you see the kindness of Jesus in his restraint? The, the kindness of Jesus in, in his withholding so as not to overwhelm us. He says, look, there, there's a lot I need to tell you, but you can't handle it all at once. So I'm going to give you my spirit so that we can stay in contact, so that I can speak to you when the time is right. Church, this is why we need to be a praying people, is it not? Jesus is not done speaking to us. Yet. He, he has spoken everything he needs to for salvation in his word, but he is inviting us into an ongoing story of life with him. And he's inviting us to stay connected to him by his spirit. Why would we not be a praying people if he has given us the gift of his spirit? If he has invited us to continue hearing from him as days and weeks and years go on. I wonder whether one of the, the spiritual threats that Christians in our culture face today is not our subscription consumer mentality. Right? Life with Jesus is not Netflix. So, sometimes y'all are chuckling, but sometimes we need to hear this. Sometimes we, we think that those two things are, are similar. Like, you know, he's there whenever we want. Like, that's true. He, he's, he's there, but then that, like, whenever we want, whenever we need, turns into, like, he's there at our convenience. Right? He's, he's there perfectly curated to our tastes and to our preferences as long as we pay our dues. Right? 
Right? One day you're, you can binge for hours on end. The next day you, you log on and scroll through thousands of titles and decide somehow like there's nothing on. There's nothing for me here. Netflix is easy. Life with Jesus is good. Right? It, Jesus is not a, an entertainment subscription designed to make you feel good. He is, he is not a, an endless supply of, of consumption or con, like consumptive dopamine hits, so like laugh tracks. Life with Jesus is, is much more similar to, to an IV drip, connected directly to your veins, designed to give you not pleasure, not entertainment, but life itself. If it came all at once, if, if, if all of the medicine in that bag came into your system all at once, it would overwhelm you. But if it gets cut off, life itself would not be possible. See, see Netflix is just an add-on to a fun and an easy life. But an IV is necessary for life itself, particularly in the hardest moments of life. The only way to, to live is to stay connected to the source of life and to trust that as you do, you will get what you need when you need it. Friends, that is prayer. That's what prayer is, staying connected to the source of life. Some of us have been through seasons where we've ripped out our IV and then wondered why the medicine isn't working. Maybe, maybe some of us are in the midst of a season like that now. We've, we've cut ourselves off from prayer and we've begun to wonder why we don't feel the Spirit's guidance. Right? You, you maybe have begun to, to feel the, the social or the physical or the spiritual threats beginning to press in against you. And you know that Jesus is life, but you're struggling to stay connected because you think that connection is dependent upon you paying your dues and, and logging in and picking out which exact verse is the exact right one for you at that time. I, I don't know what it is. But if you're in that season struggling to stay connected, can I tell you that Jesus has given you his spirit so that you would not fall away. He has given you himself so that you would stay connected to him, that you would endure, that you would learn to, to lean on him, to talk to him, to let him convict you and guide you and speak to you, to learn to seek him morning and evening, to, to ask him to light your way and make straight your path because the path will never straighten itself out. To ask him to tell you, to, to help you tell rather the truth from the lies and to be ready as one drop comes and you then might have to wait for the next. Watch as he meets you in the midst of life's hardest moments. Friends, sometimes we, we think that the, the gospel message of, of life with Jesus is an escape from the gospel 
there is an escape from the hardest moments, uh, a Netflix-like escape into another world, another reality. But the gospel of Jesus is, is the very life and fuel that we need. It is what grounds us to our real reality and leads us through life's hardest times, forming, changing, transforming us in the midst of them so that we come out more like Jesus on the other side. That we would see his life and strive by the power of the Spirit to live a life pleasing to him. That we would see his death on our behalf and not be afraid or ashamed of the thought of physical harm that might come against us for his sake. Because he died for imperfect sinners. We ought to be able to live for a perfect savior. To see his resurrection and his ascension in glory as he sends us his Holy Spirit as the greatest act of love and care the world has ever seen, that we could be guided through life so that we don't have to guess at what God might want to say to us, but that we could commune with him and know him personally. Friends, here's the heart of the matter. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will not fall away from God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will not fall away. That doesn't mean it will be easy. Living as a believer is challenging. There will be temptations. There will be threats. You have an enemy who wants nothing more than for you to fall away. But your endurance is based on the one who saved you, on the one who gave himself for you, not on you. God wants you to remain faithful, to help you navigate the, the difficulties and the hard times. And so he gives you himself through the indwelling presence of his spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you can be sure that you will not fall away. Rather, you've been given the, the lifeline, the, the IV directly connected so that you might live. Can we rest in that comfort? Well, congrats. You made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.